All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling? With regards to Chen's newsletter, it is now time to sign up. He does accept new subscribers during the first quarter of each calendar, each calendar quarter. So starting uh, tomorrow, he will be accepting new subscribers. So if you've got your name on the waiting list at miningstocks.com uh, and you're uh, interested in subscribing, tomorrow is the uh, day to start doing so. Uh, you can also sign up for my newsletter at miningstocks.com uh, anytime. Uh, or you can call our office in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal business hours. But I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular Voice America business channel shows. Also, I'd like to encourage you to continue sending your questions and comments along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Uh, I'd also like uh, to encourage you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is jtaylormedia. Also, uh, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources, Copper Bank Resources, and Kalanex Mines. Uh, I would title today's show, How to Diversify When the Fed is Out of Patience. Uh, our guest today will be Axel Merck. Gene uh, Epstein will be with me in a few minutes, and I have with me uh, momentarily here Michael Oliver, who we like to have on uh, as often as possible for his views on some of the key markets. And Michael really does outstanding work um, from a technical perspective, as good as any I know. Uh, so always pleased to have him with uh, with us uh, as often as possible. Uh, in a moment, when the market uh, markets think the Fed is stopping to exactly at the time when you know people start thinking the Fed is going to stop pumping money into the system. Uh, as David Stockman says, the stock market throws a hissy fit, and um, whereupon the Fed then trots out before uh, some Fed officer uh, trots out before the microphones to utter a word of encouragement to uh, stock investors, and that word was patience. It was uh, the word that was used to cause the equity markets to turn around on a dime and go up like mad for a while, uh, but they're playing this game back and forth. Uh, they, the Fed feels like they absolutely have to at some point start to tighten, uh, and they, of course they want interest rates to go up so that they're in a position where they can lower them again um, and, and uh, manipulate the markets in that way from time to time. So, But the big lie that the Fed and our governments are constantly telling us that uh, we can have whatever we want without paying for it, 
without paying a price for it, will, of course, at some time in the future come home to roost. Uh, well, that's really why I'm a gold bug, because I honestly believe that printing money forever uh, is is going to ruin and is in the process of ruining our economy to a very great extent and ultimately our currency. So gold is the guardian angel of financial truth, uh, which is why the price of gold must be manipulated, in my view, lower uh, by the liars and the satanic forces that control American laws and military force, I think, uh, and the mindset of the population also needs to be uh, manipulated to a great extent. But eventually, like Pinocchio's nose, that grows ever longer with each successive lie, the truth at some point can no longer be hidden. And so gold will one day become uh, money again, in my view, not because government wants it to, but because the laws of nature will ultimately prevail. Um, Axel Merck will be with me, as I'd mentioned, uh, a little at about half past the hour. He'll be with us to talk about the natural laws of economics and how we can prevail during the dark days uh, when disastrous anti-free market economics are being forced upon us. And in the end, uh, actually turn those negatives into positives, uh, perhaps, uh, for uh, investment uh, for our investment portfolios. And uh, in just a few minutes, Gene Epstein will be with me again to talk about the upcoming New York City Junto meetings in Midtown Manhattan this coming Thursday. Gene will also have some uh, things to say about the Federal Reserve uh, patience and uh, some of its other anti-free market behavior of late. Gene uh, will join me in just a few minutes, as I say, after our first commercial break. But I'm really happy to say that Michael Oliver is with me now. And Michael always provides some, some great insights into the markets from his technical perspective. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you. Uh, on March 28th, your uh, letter to your subscribers was titled, Emergent Commodity Bull, a Process for Assessment and Entry. Uh, what are you seeing that suggests that we may be in for a more bullish environment for commodities in general, Michael? Well, it's a mixed bag in terms of the net price trend, the obvious trends of certain markets. I mean, we have oil still uh, depressed and falling. Uh, lumber's under pressure. Cattle, I think, is going to drop back some. But net on balance, many of the markets, the grains, uh, the precious metals in particular, have paid their dues and have done due diligence bottoming over a period of time. You can even see it on the price charts. But from a momentum perspective, just what I look at first, I, I see definitely what looked to me like basing patterns, not continuation patterns for, you know, sustained further decline. I don't see that. It's jumping off the page at me that I'm seeing the opposite, the type of warnings that I would expect to see uh, of bottoming action. Again, it's not a unified chorus. So mm -hmm. you know, if you take a metric like the Bloomberg Commodity Index, uh, which is all the things, you know, the lumber, oil, and grains, and metals, and so forth, uh, it, it's got internals that are going different ways, just like the stock yeah. market does at times. But net on balance, I think we've, uh, with the oil collapse, and there's probably some residue there, uh, <clears throat> and probably some due diligence basing it's going to need to do. But net on balance, I think the multi-year decline in commodities is, is near the end, if not uh, essentially over. Uh, I'm looking for leadership out of gold mm -hmm. and silver. They happen to uh, look most ripe in terms of the commodities within the index that uh, uh, look like they've based sufficiently, they just need to protrude out above the top of the base. Um, and now that we have a new quarter, I've got some new numbers. Uh, if gold can get back up and trade to its three-quarter average, which is 12.18.20 to be precise, do mm -hmm. that any time next quarter. That's not a breakout, but that tells me 
the, those people who are still piling in on the short side of course, mm-hmm. are wasting the bullets. Uh, that, oh. that trade says, I'm safe. Uh, a breakout in gold this quarter would be a monthly close over 1265 Mm-hmm. Which is well ahead of the highs we made early in this quarter, which is the thirteen oh seven. Momentum's going to break out there. Silver getting much over seventeen dollars on mm-hmm. a monthly close will look very solid. Uh, so I'm looking at them as leaders, uh, and, and no. I think if they if they emerge, I think a lot of others will follow. Michael, do you see? Uh, I mean, is this typical of gold and silver to follow, or? or- do you not have a, an opinion on well, that? Well, no, I have a bias on that. They tend to lead, uh, it, certainly in uh, the last big commodity bull run in the 80s, uh, uh, the, it peaked in 1980, but began in 1976 for gold, and commodities bottomed in 77. So gold had a lead of about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't uh, beating its chest, but it was definitely off its lows and on the way up by the time the, commod- the CRB index uh, bottomed in the first half of uh, 1977. So, and then also at the top, uh, in 1980, gold peaked in January. Oil did not peak until October of 1980. So gold led mm-hmm. the way both times. And I'm still, I'm seeing that evidence now that if there's an upturn in commodities, uh, focus on gold uh, and silver. And if they emerge, I think you can be pretty well assured that uh, then go, go to the grain markets would be the next place I'd look for uh, upturning evidence. And uh, that there's a bottom here. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's reassuring uh, for those of us that have been long. What's that, Michael? That's an asset category shift, like you were mentioning your subject this weekend, is, uh, you know, asset categories. And uh, that is, uh, I would definitely shift more money into the commodity space. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's certainly a contrarian move, even aside, but what you're, uh, aside from your uh, technical work, but your technical work is suggesting that we've probably seen the worst of the downside for some uh, for the commodity complex as a whole, though there still could be some downside in oil, I guess, and mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. you uh, mentioned cattle as well, perhaps. Yes. Uh, okay, but you know, uh, you you also wrote uh, on your weekend missive. Um, you talked about the dollar, uh, and it seems to be you're you're suggesting the dollar may be in a topping uh, process here. Yeah, I did a report like uh, three weeks ago on the way the dollar looked back in 2000, 2001, when it was peaking up at around 120 in price, dollar index I'm speaking of. Recently, it got over 100. Um, we're now 98. Uh, I can see an intermediate pullback in the dollar probably take you, might take you down to 95 on the dollar index, which is several points below where you are now. And in the interim of that type of pullback, which I don't see as a precipitous top. In other words, I don't think mm-hmm. the drop from over 100 to 95 says that's it. Uh, yeah. I could easily see the dollar go back up again to the high, maybe even make a new high, but it begins a process, in my view, of what could be topping for the dollar. Um, to expect the final easy top, I don't think, is in the cards. But uh, I've noticed this in many markets, that if there's a more or less a mama market out there that uh, when it does something, you can't do something, but then when that market backs off, let's say the dollar, for example, the markets that might want to exploit that have an open door to exploit it. So if the dollar, in fact, does wobble off further over the next month or two, uh, it'll be very interesting to see if gold and uh, silver can exploit that open door and escape through their uh, breakouts. Mm-hmm. Well, earlier this year, we did see gold going up along with the dollar, but that's uh, recently that's been broken. Possible. Yes, I, I agree with that, yeah. It's, uh, it's, we did yeah. see it, in fact, happening at least for for a couple of a few weeks. Uh, but um, you mentioned also on that same note, your weekend missive that 
uh, there was a there's been quite a long basing pattern for gold. I think you mentioned 21 months or something like that. What what does that mean? Is that does that pretend well, I mean, it, it's uh, sort a possible of a message <laughs> in a way? Uh, yeah. June 2013, gold hit 1180 after have, having been in excess of 1900 a few years prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we closed this quarter this month at 1183. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that was June 2013. We're talking one and three quarters years where gold is where it was one and three quarters years ago. That's a message. Wow. Uh, somebody's buying it down here now. Of course, yeah. in, in terms of other uh, currencies, dollars much higher than that. Uh, versus the euro or the yen, for example. So in sure. dollar terms, uh, though it's it's sort of flat, uh, it definitely is sideways. So I think there's a message there. Somebody mm-hmm. is buying it. <laughs> uh, somebody's, and despite all the sentiment on the negative side. Yeah. Well, we certainly get the sentiment, the negative sentiment uh, in the United States, in the Western world. There are other parts of the world where people look at gold a little differently than we do. Uh, in the land of King Dollar, I suppose. You know, another interesting point that you made in another missive uh, recently, Michael, we got just a couple of minutes here yet, but uh, generally when this commodity complex turns around and heads more bullish, silver tends to lead gold, doesn't it? Yes. that's. Uh, I wouldn't call it a precise instrument of measurement, but it's uh, definitely since, well, silver peaked, for example, months before gold did in 2011. And mm-hmm. already hit it off its highs, substantially off its highs by, by the time gold peaked. Well, that, what that means is the spread between gold and silver uh, began to disfavor silver. It had favored mm-hmm. it all during the bull trend. Uh, for the last uh, several years, silver has underperformed gold. Mm-hmm. It's weaker on the downside, less strong on the upside. However, that spread is beginning to show signs of uh, topping. Uh, by that I mean, right now it takes 71 point some odd ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. My work suggests if you ever break below 70, you, you do a weekly close and you divide the gold by the price of silver and you find it's 69, let's say, ounces of silver versus to buy one ounce of gold. That is a trend change. And mm-hmm. that's a multi-year trend change in that spread, which indicates that silver is now about to outperform gold. And mm-hmm. that should be a positive sign for the net trend of, of those two metals. Wow, very interesting. I, I, I think that is, uh, there have been some other analysts that have observed that, that I've talked to in the past as well. And it, I, I guess uh, those of us that have remained on the long side during its downside move for the precious metals. Um, that's sort of music to our ears. At least we're hoping that there's a turn for those of us that have been uh, wrongfully long for so long. Uh, anything else? You know, I notice here, uh, Michael, that we're down 150 on the Dow today as you and I are speaking. Just a, a quick note on how are you looking at the uh, at the equity markets, the Dow and the S and P. I think the equity markets are topping. I, I've had that conclusion since October, and especially in January. I'm talking U.S. Right. equity markets in particular. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if you drop below 2050 on the S and P, especially down to about 2030 on a daily close, anytime next month, which means, of course, next quarter because the, the mm-hmm. numbers change there. I think you've probably seen your top. I had been looking for a possibility of a 2130 S&P high, and we were not able to do that this year. We get up to 2119, I think, was the best we were able to achieve, slightly mm-hmm. out above last year's high. But I think it's a topping process, and the evidence of the downside, in other words, payoff for the top, uh, are those numbers I gave you, 2030 to 2050 area. Mm-hmm. Right now we're about 20 in the 2070s. So, uh, again, we had a rally this past few days that attempted to go back to the high and wasn't able to, at least so far. Mm-hmm. I think their clock is running out. I, I measure time as well, not just price and momentum. Sure. 
And it, and it looks to me like that if you want to make the case the S&P is going to trend higher, you better exploit that right now. If you don't, interesting. I think the clock's over. No, very, very interesting, Michael. Thank you very much again. Uh, your insights you. are always welcome, and I certainly uh, enjoy reading your missives and would suggest to our listeners uh, that they would do well to explore Michael's work. Uh, uh, also, especially for accredited investors, he does make available his service now. It's uh, uh, The website is uh, olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com. So, folks, go there, check out Michael's work. If you're a serious investor, you may want to consider uh, subscribing to his letter. It is an excellent service. Thank you very much, Michael, for being with us once again. Thank you, Jake. Bye-bye. Folks, uh, don't go away. Gene Epstein's going to be coming up. He's uh, writes for Barron's. He's got some very interesting things to tell us in New York City Junto meeting coming up this coming Thursday. And uh, Gene also has some interesting observations about the Federal Reserve that I think uh, well, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say about that. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Gene Epstein. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network novo resources corporation trading symbols nsrpf on the otcqx and nvo on the canadian securities exchange is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the hammersley basin of western australia novo's flagship asset its beaton's creek project has an ni 43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton with 10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from newmont mining novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have Gene Epstein with me once again. I'd like to have Gene with me on the first, uh, well, the Tuesday before the first Thursday of every month because Gene heads up and does an excellent job with uh, a, media, a monthly meeting uh, called the New York City Junto that's held at the General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street here in, uh, in New York. It's between 5th and 6th Avenues. Uh, welcome, Gene. Thanks for joining me again. Happy to be back. Really always good to talk to you. I might just tell uh, any of the listeners that are in the metropolitan area might want to seriously consider attending this. There's a, it's, a great, uh, uh, it's a great event, uh, always a lot of audience interaction with the speakers and always uh, intellectually challenging. And Gene does a, a great job of keeping the meeting civil and in order and uh, moving right along. So, Gene, tell us about this week's uh, the Junto that's coming up this week. We're having uh, Jason Riley, uh, who uh, is uh, just uh, has just recently left the Wall Street Journal editorial board to join the Manhattan Institute. He is a, uh, a black uh, commentator, uh, African American, and he's written a recently published book called 
please stop helping us, how liberals make it harder for blacks to succeed. And uh, he's already gotten uh, a lot of pushback uh, for that book, I know from the New York Times especially. And uh, I uh, believe that he's among a handful of black commentators who who are pretty outspoken uh, about such issues uh, of how the liberals are actually making it harder for blacks to succeed. So it should be a pretty provocative and lively evening. Oh, it should. It certainly should be. I would imagine your friend, uh, your buddy there, Paul Krugman, must really love this guy's views. Uh, yeah, Krugman hasn't commented on Riley, but I, um, I imagine uh, that uh, he would especially like him. There was a, uh, a black sociologist from Harvard named Orlando Patterson who did a huge, major attack on Riley's book in the New York Times Book Review about three weeks ago. I actually, uh, I, I favorably reviewed Riley's book for Barron's, and I actually wrote a letter to the editor protesting uh, the uh, idiocy of Patterson's attack. I'm actually uh, going to have uh, Jason Riley respond in detail, because uh, I'm going to post on, on the screen uh, what Patterson said about his book and um, give uh, Riley a chance uh, to respond uh, in some detail to, uh, to what are supposedly the problems with his claims. Uh, also, Nicholas Kristof, who's a New York Times columnist, has written a lot about, uh, about uh, this subject and is in effect attacked Riley. So it's clearly, and of course, what with Ferguson and uh, the Obama administration's position on these matters is affecting how blacks are treated by cops and how by society in general. Uh, we're talking about a pretty uh, an issue that's uh, pretty much uh, in the headlines these days. Yeah, well, it certainly is. So it should be a great it should be a great session uh, for sure, Gene. Well, I know it'll be good, and I'd like to encourage my listeners to uh, to attend. I'd like to just uh, pick your brain on a, on a couple of things that, and have you share a couple of things that you've read, recently written in uh, Barron's on March 23rd. Uh, you wrote a, an article called uh, titled The Ugly Side of the Fed's Reluctance to Raise Rates. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, the the ugly side is uh, something that uh, I, I should have written uh, perhaps the same same sort of subhead that Riley uh, wrote. How well liberals uh, who back who support Janet Yellen's Federal Reserve are making it harder uh, for people of limited means to mm-hmm. earn uh, to eke out any kind of decent return on their money. The the Federal Reserve's uh, uh, zero to, to basically zero percent interest rate target has meant that you earn practically nothing on the bank certificates of deposit, uh, which are pretty much been the uh, the instrument of choice for the elderly who who just want to park their money and earn some kind of decent return over and above the rate of inflation. Uh, And uh, not uh, not at all to anybody's surprise, uh, obviously those rates have been punished uh, down to practically nothing, certainly well below the rate of inflation for elderly people. And uh, that the, the the market uh, for those sort of uh, basically the sort of safe uh, uh, one to three to five year instruments uh, that people of limited means tend to use uh, for their savings uh, has, has basically been abandoned. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, itself reported uh, a collapse in uh, in the use of bank CDs in particular, and 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 candidly admitted that's all because the interest rates have collapsed. And well, that's all happened uh, because the Federal Reserve policy. And indeed, if the progressives care about inequality, we free market people care about inequality to the extent that unequal uh, shares 
are, uh, are the fault of federal or, or, uh, or monetary policy to the extent that the game is rigged against people of limited means. And in this case, it definitely is. And so, indeed, the Krugmans of this world and others uh, should be especially concerned about the price being paid uh, by uh, people of limited means for, uh, for, the Fed, for Federal Reserve policies. Now, I go on to say that, uh, of course, perhaps uh, these people ought to recognize that their interests are being sacrificed for the greater good. But if you explore uh, uh, the greater good that Yellen's zero uh, percent interest rate policy is supposed to be achieving, uh, then uh, you find uh, that uh, it's probably contributing to the greater bad. It's contributing. It's, it's essentially causing all kinds of uh, excessive risk taking in the market, more or less the way uh, the Austrians would have predicted. But it's even becoming palpable to commentators like Martin Feldstein, for example, from Harvard, who had a piece uh, in the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal making the point that people, investors, are, are being forced to take unusual risks in order to earn some kind of respectable yield on their money. And that is, of course, all because of the Fed's punishing uh, interest rate policy. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, uh, pension funds are having to go out or are going out now and investing in, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley startups and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Zimbabwe bonds and things like that. So it's, uh, it, it does seem a little bit, uh, certainly more than a little bit counterproductive. Gene, also, just quickly, if I might ask you about another article that you wrote more recently in Barron's, I guess last week's Barron's, mm-hmm. um, that uh, the slow interest rates, in, uh, the slow rise in inflation is delaying mm-hmm. the Fed's hike. Now, it seems to me, you know, what you're talking about is by manipulating the rates to such low levels, they're not allowing price discovery in the capital markets. That, I believe, is then deterring rather than stimulating growth in the economy. Uh, and, uh, and if that's the case, then maybe that's one of the reasons that inflation, you know, the Fed wants, I don't think the Fed is right in, in trying to see higher inflation rates, but they seem to think that's what they should be doing. They're looking for 2% inflation rates and they're not getting them. So you, I guess what you're saying is Yellen can't raise the rates because inflation is remaining, quote unquote, too low. Yes, although uh, you know, I I, uh, I was a, probably a bit ambiguous in discussing it because I didn't. I, I, I have to reflect uh, Yellen's own ambiguity. If you mm-hmm. try to make sense of what uh, the of, of the Federal Reserve's forward guidance and its policies and its intentions, uh, then uh, you'll see that Yellen leaves herself all kinds of escape hatches. So yeah. uh, really, so therefore, uh, I said, well, well, let's take them seriously. Then they're getting uh, the, the measure of choice. They're getting something like 1.3% inflation at most. At least that's sort of advancing toward their 2%. But Yellen, even late Friday, she declared that she may start raising rates even before she gets some indication from uh, from the uh, from the price indexes. But in any case, uh, the, another related question is not just when will she start raising rates from 0%, uh, but when will she start raising rates so that uh, the rate at least exceeds the rate of inflation interest rate returns uh, normally are supposed to give you a real rate of return so right. exceeding the rate of, so there too that she probably will be hiking a bit uh, before the year is out but uh, it's going to be probably a couple of years before uh, rates are, are higher than even measured conventionally measured inflation so just as you indicate uh, the the idea that the fed does more good than harm even mainstream people are beginning to realize that most of the time uh, the Fed does more harm than good.
Yeah, unfortunately, that seems to be the case, and we don't yeah. seem to have much to say about it, Gene. Um, yeah. The Fed, uh, maybe maybe in the political process, we can hope that a Rand Paul or somebody rises uh, to challenge the Fed, but you have to wonder, you know, it's a very powerful yeah. a very powerful institution for sure. So, yeah. Gene, I want to thank you very much for, your, for coming on and uh, giving us the update on, on Junto and also sharing your views on, on these markets. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be back uh, here after the break with, uh, well, Axel Merck is going to be with me, and we'll be talking to Axel more uh, about some of the same topics we just talked to Gene about. Uh, So don't go away. We'll be uh, right back after the commercial break with Axel Merck. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting Kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Axel Merck. Axel uh, is the president and CIO of Merck Investments, and he's manager of the Merck Funds. And, uh, well, he's an expert on macro trends. We've had him on this show before. Uh, he also uh, has a great knowledge of, uh, of gold, and he's also an innovative entrepreneur, uh, a capitalist, and uh, understands, as I say, understands gold and has had uh, put together one of my favorite products and one that I own, uh, the Merck Gold Trust ETF, uh, symbol O-U-N-Z, um, trades on the New York Exchange. Welcome, Axel. Thanks for joining me again. Very right to be with you. Uh, you know, as I recall earlier this year, I think I might have heard you on an interview on, on Bloomberg, um, you were sort of of the opinion that the euro would get stronger during 2015, and of course we're only through the first quarter of 2015, so a long time to go, uh, and that the dollar would probably, I think, peak, and you can correct me if I've got that wrong, but so far it's been the opposite. The dollar has shown quite a bit of strength relative to other uh, fiat currencies, and um, uh, but it's the euro's declined on the back of ongoing Greek insolvency. Uh, can you update us a little bit on the on the latest events in Greece and uh, what that may mean for the European financial markets going forward this year? Well, sure. 
Sure, yeah. The, the media does pull me out when they want to have a positive word about the euro just because I'm not as negative as others are. Um, <laughs> and I don't think yeah. anybody really wanted to catch a falling knife, uh, but I, I do argue a bunch of things that, um, that, that one can combine and say, yep, the euro shouldn't be quite as weak. And, and, and let's just do a couple of things here. Um, uh, first of all, the euro has been almost in a free fall until not long ago. Um, actually, during the FOMC meeting, um, that Janet Yellen had the other day. That's when it found a bottom, went to about 105, then zoomed up to 110, and is now hovering 10, around 107. And, and basically, everybody and their dog appears to be negative on the euro. And no matter what you think of the eurozone, when you have such extreme positioning, that's very, very dicey because you can get a snapback rally. Um, also, what happens when volatility is induced, in this case, the FMC induced volatility, and we've had volatility since, and people are encouraged to use less leverage, and so when you have these sort of extreme positions, um, they tend to at least temporarily move back. Now, uh, going more at fundamentals, um, Draghi, the head of the ECB, is clearly trying to print a boat out of money, convincing people that they should sell the euro. He wants a weaker euro to boost the economy, but of course the only folks that benefit from a weaker euro other than some tourism everywhere are the folks who are ready to export. So Germany is going gangbusters. Um, mm-hmm. As far as Greece is concerned, we are not as negative as, as many people are, simply for the reason that it is no longer financial institutions holding Greek debt. It is the ECB, the IMF, the EU, if Greece goes bust, it's a big problem for Greece, but the so-called contagion isn't there anymore because it is the other folks that hold um, that, 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 that they socialize the losses when, when the ECB and others um, are losing out. And, and so clearly some other concerns might arise, but um, the market clearly says that they are not terribly concerned about Greece. So the Europeans have, have essentially socialized the, the debt, just like the United States did in a sense. I suppose, all right? That's what you're saying? It's yeah, well, off the there, balance some, sheets some of the banks? There's some, interesting, there's some interesting twist to it. I mean, the European Central Bank now has about 100 billion euro exposure to Greece. Now, technically, a central bank can have a negative net worth. The Bank of Israel had, had a negative net worth for about 20 years. It doesn't matter, except the ECB has these, these wonderful rules that if there were to be losses, the, the member countries would need to pay in. Now, rules are there to be broken, so we, we have to see how that's going to play out. In fact, that very rule is causing some headaches right now because um, the Bundesbank, for example, as part of this QE program, is supposed to be buying German uh, bonds and they don't want to buy them at negative yields. Now you got to go out many, many years to get anything that's near zero, um, and so the Bundesbank doesn't quite know what to buy because if they buy them at negative yields, the, the Bundesbank doesn't want anybody to come up for these losses. But if they don't come up for their own losses, well, you, you're, you're opening a political hot potato if ever there are Greek losses. And and, and so um, this entire QE program has has created nice havoc. It did weaken the euro as, as intended. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out going forward. You know, speaking of negative rates, uh, Axel, I have to ask you, what do you make of the, of the Swiss negative rate, and, and where is that rate now? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, let me look it up as we, as we talk okay. where it is right now. I mean, it's been, been going on, on that, um, that pretty right negative, now in I... Switzerland, the 10-year 
Uh, well, actually, yes, the 10-year is a minus 0.089, so slightly negative on the 10-year. Um, and, and basically, yeah, people are giving the government money uh, because they, they don't want to hold it themselves. There's too much capital out there chasing things. Um, yeah. Obviously, all this QE is inducing some of that. Um, and and, what, and and the clear encouragement is supposed to be that you're supposed to put your money away uh, abroad. But um, then again, the, the alternative is the dollar. And uh, the one thing I'd like to point out to people is that the dollar has been rallying together with the markets. And that's not supposed to happen. The, 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 the dollar is supposed to be the safe haven that where people right. go to in times of crises. And the issue is that when it rallies in good times, well, if we do have a major correction in the market, which I think will happen, um, well, does that mean the dollar is going to rally in that environment? It's possible, but I wouldn't bet my house on that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it just it just seems uh, it just seems hard to comprehend the the logic of paying a bank to take your money. But I guess what it means is that well, the Greek. I, I mean, it, it means it means that people have so little confidence in the uh, in the purchasing power or, or the stability of other currencies that they're willing. Uh, and, and I mean, how much money can you put under your mattress, Axel? Well, what's, what's happening is that people are, are then, then almost forced to chase yield, to chase performance, and that's exactly what's happening. Remember in 2008 and 2007, who bought the toxic securities the last? It was the foreigners. The foreigners bought those the last. They bought the, bought the worst tranches. That's why you had these, these big bank blowups in, in Europe. Um, and, so, and so similarly, um, now it is foreigners chasing U.S. equities, chasing U.S. returns because they are scared away from 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 bonds or just about any other security. There, uh, they're, they're they're forced to buy very risky things, um, and this will go fine until suddenly something goes wrong. Right? I mean, what can possibly go wrong? Yeah, what can possibly go wrong? I, I think any number of things can possibly go wrong. You know, we had John Rubino on this show a couple of weeks ago talking about how pension funds are now buying. Uh, Silicon Valley startups, you know, and and um, and how I think it was a De- some Denver, uh, uh, some um, Danish pension fund that was buying Zimbabwe bonds or something like that. So it, it's getting a little bit ridiculous, it seems. Well, everybody, everybody needs to make the numbers, and uh, and so that's that's the sort of thing that that forces them to do. I mean, the big challenge for an investor is because obviously the question is ultimately, what are we going to do about it, and why do we care? Well, the reason we care is that all this QE has inflated asset prices. Well, what happens? God forbid, the Fed is trying to engineer an exit. Well. That means asset prices might deflate again. What the Fed has done is they have taken perceived risk out of the market. Um, junk bonds are not don't appear risky anymore. Portuguese debt, whatever you name it, and so as central banks try to engineer an exit. Risk will come back, fear will come back. And because we've based this recovery on asset price inflation, the headwinds to the, to the economic growth are going to be significant, and that pretty much ties the hands of, of the Fed. But it doesn't mean they won't try, because they have this make-believe um, uh, world where everything is going to go, go play out just happily ever after. Uh, and, and that's really the, the, the challenge that we're in. Now, as an investor, what you want to do is you want to make sure you have something that is not correlated to the rest of the things you have. And it's pretty difficult because anything that's not been correlated has probably gone down of late. Well, there's not too much. Uh, in fact, uh, there's not too much that isn't correlated with everything else these days except, uh, I would say, gold. And uh, I'm sure that, that fits into your, to your matrix of, uh, of investment possibilities in a major way because of that, right? 
Well, gold is one of the easiest things that people can relate to. I mean, you love it or you hate it. Um, over time, gold has had a low, um, a very low correlation to other assets. And then the question, the second question about gold is, of course, what's the return going to be going forward? Everybody kind of sees, oh, over, over history it's done well, but what about tomorrow? And what about with rising interest rates? Well, gold is a brick. It doesn't pay any interest. But that seems pretty appealing to me when interest rates are negative everywhere else. And the question is, of course, well, if interest rates go up, where are they going to go to? And the, the real question there is, what is it on a real basis? What is it after inflation? And mm-hmm. right now we are, we're just around zero on cash. Um, I would assert that the Fed is only going to raise rates if the economy continues to improve, which means inflation may also pick up. And inflation is, in my view, going to be higher than, than the interest we're going to get. In fact, I would allege that in a decade from now, we cannot afford positive real interest rates in the U.S., in the Eurozone, or Japan. And so we're going to have this bias in the system to keep interest rates low to negative, at least on a real basis. Um, and, and that's an environment that, that works for gold. Now, the other things one can do as well, but gold is just an easy answer. Now, clearly, gold, when priced in dollars, can also be quite volatile, so it's, it's not the solution to everything for everybody. Sure. Uh, no question about it, but it seems to me, Axel, that when the Fed uh, suppresses interest rates, as it has, central banks around the world, the Bank of Japan, of course, too, and now the, Euro, uh, the Eurozone, that what you're really doing is not allowing price discovery in the capital markets. And in my way of thinking, all that can do is result in less growth, not more growth. What do you think? Well, uh, absolutely. Um, the, you, you're, you're imposing capital misallocation. And in my view, nothing good can come of it. Now, uh, the one place, by the way, that's moving in the other direction, although they've also been getting a lot of heat, is China. Um, China is, is one of their, the, the themes that they have is they want to introduce more competition in the banking sector, not just on the deposit rates, but on the lending side, meaning they actually want to price credit according to the risk profile of borrowers. Think about that mm. concept, right? Um, <laughs> and and, and but basically, historically, state-owned enterprises have access to credit, but small and medium-sized enterprises have to go to a loan shock. Now, if you can allocate credit more efficiently, you can unleash an entrepreneurial boom in China. It's one of the reasons I'm not as negative on China as many, many other people are, Um, but there they're moving in the right direction. I'm not saying they're there, and I'm not saying it's an easy road, but at least they're moving in the right direction, whereas, yes, in much of the rest of the world, we've we've been distorting the credit allocation process, and and that's uh, that's not good. Uh, You know, Axel, you just touched on the, the whole idea of how are we going to protect ourselves when the Fed actually starts to raise rates, uh, your, a title of your March 3rd article was How to Diversify When the Fed is Out of Patience. Uh, first of all, I mean, do you, I, 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 it's hard for me to see how the Fed can do anything other than jawbone about higher rates. Uh, do you agree with that? I mean, it's hard for me to see how they can really actually start to raise rates. Uh, they've been wanting to do it, it seems, but every time they get close to it, the stock market throws a hissy fit. Uh, and and just uh, today, I noticed the stock market is down nearly 200 points. I, um, it seems like there's so much based on the stock market and this whole idea of uh, animal spirits. Uh, what happens if we get a sharp decline in the equity market here? And do you think that the equity market is what the Fed will uh, is watching and will will actually you know deter them from raising rates? 
Well, I, I think it's the chicken, not the egg. Um, and what I mean yeah. with that is that it is it is central bank policy throughout the world that has kept volatility low. The one thing central banks have achieved is, as I indicated earlier, they've taken perceived fear, perceived risk out of the market. Volatility mm-hmm. is down. So, and, and what happens in that environment is, think about equity prices moving higher, volatility is low. Well, people think what can possibly go wrong, they sign up, they go into the market, market price moves higher. The problem is the moment volatility moves moves higher, the moment fear comes back for whatever reason, people say, I didn't sign up for this. And that's why everybody's going to rush for the exit at the same time. And so when when central banks and the, the Fed is the biggest elephant in the room, so it doesn't really matter that the Bank of Japan and the ECB still, still want to move in the other direction. When the Fed wants to move towards an exit, volatility is going to move up and that's going to cause havoc in the markets. Um, clearly, we still have this buy the dip mentality, but um, the, as the Fed is trying to do an exit, and, and, and remember, Janet Yellen, um, her focus is the labor market. She is going to be aloof to what's happening in the stock market for a little bit until the stock market teaches her better, but it's going to be a while. Um, and, and so volatility, in my view, is going to continue to rise. That's going to be very bad for asset prices. Now, of course, you add to that that earnings momentum is slowing down, and there's some other reasons why the market uh, might be coming down. But in my view, it is this, the Fed that's, that's inducing more volatility. Also added to that is, is Janet Yellen's new thing, that she doesn't want to say what's going to happen going forward. She keeps everybody guessing. Well, if you keep everybody guessing, that means people disagree, which is a good thing, but it conversely means more volatility. And when you have highly elevated asset prices, again, that provides headwinds to asset prices. These are all very nice ways of saying that there might be a crash. Yeah, and uh, but but as soon as the market starts to get weak and uh, she trots out or one of the other Fed officials trot out to say, oh well, we're we're not we're patient, we're not going to let it, we're not going to be in a hurry to raise rates, and then the market turns around and just heads north again. It seems. Well, nothing happens in a straight line. A couple of years ago, I had a chat with Don Cohn. At the time, he he was the had been the, the vice chair at the Fed, and for him, mm-hmm. it's all a walk in the park. And his response when I mentioned this to him that this is eventually how I see things unfold, going to tighten tie the hands of of the Fed, uh, he said, "Oh, don't worry about it. We'll just fine tune it, um, and then they'll just raise a little bit more and so forth." In practice, what I think it means is that um, that Bill Gross uh, has it right when he says the new normal is closer to two percent, meaning that they're just not going to be able to raise rates as much and the only thing I would add to that is at two percent we're going to have negative real interest rates now I had a chat with uh, with another federal official a couple of months ago and explained that to him and and he looked at me and he said well that's not a stable environment you don't find an equilibrium there when you have negative rates and that's where the the Fed plateaus out and my response to that was I never said it's going to be stable <laughs> yeah, well, it's it, it seems to me that what you know what you're describing here Axel is a, a less stable environment uh while it's perceived that risk is low in fact uh from a systemic point of view it's actually uh, becoming greater. Risk we have is becoming market greater. Stability is eroding. Um, the uh, also political stability is also eroding in the world, and those things kind of go hand in hand uh, because real wages haven't grown anywhere. People are upset. They vote for more populist politicians. Um, uh, policymakers throughout the world never blame themselves and blame others, and they, they intervene in the markets. Um, we're going to have further volatility. So yes, uh, the the um, the safe haven cash is no longer safe, um, and there is no there is no place to hide. And then basically what that means is that you you have 
have a risky portfolio and you need to need to work with it uh, with the added challenge that everything is highly correlated. So yes, if you're a sophisticated investor, you can deal with it. But if you're mom and pop saver, you're going to be on the losing end of this. And that's exactly what we see play out in the world. You wrote another very interesting article, uh, and I should tell our listeners that that these uh, these pieces that you write are actually available to them if they uh, if they sign up, right, uh, for email delivery of your yes. of your we, missives. We have, a, we have a free newsletter at MerckInvestments.com, and you can also follow me on Twitter. Axel Merck is my handle, and uh, yep, follow follow me. I, I try to yeah, shed some light on some of these topics. Would encourage my listeners to do that because there's always a lot of good food for thought, and uh, and I think important uh, information. Uh, about the markets, but a very interesting article is Japan, Zimbabwe. Well, that would seem to be a, a ludicrous idea. Uh, and you mentioned that you were on recently on a panel discussion, and all the other members of the panel uh, thought that that was a ludicrous idea. And while you admit that there's certainly a lot of differences between Japan and Zimbabwe, you found a lot of similarities uh, to point out. Could you share some of those with our listeners? Well, I, I try to give people some some food for thought, and 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 and, and clearly Zimbabwe and, and Japan. The key difference is that one is an advanced economy and and, and one is not. Um, but there's this perception that an advanced economy cannot possibly go bankrupt. Um, the the key difference is that. If you have, unsus- I mean, the, the similarity is if you have unsustainable policies, they got to stop at some point. But the key difference is that advanced economies, including Japan, they have many more options. And then, and then we we have unsustainable budgets in Europe, in Japan, but also in the U.S. Um, we're probably the best at kicking can down the road in the U.S. Um, but and in Japan, we have abenomics these days. And uh, Mr. Abe might double down yet again if 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 his policies are not effective enough. Um, the the ultimately Japan did end up with a bout of hyper inflation after World War II to reset its debt level, so to speak. Um, and, and that's a possible way of dealing with it. If you, if you have a productive enterprise, you might survive it if you don't have any, any debt and you don't get hung up in the, in the spiral that might ensue. Um, the, the biggest fear and the biggest threat that's out there, by the way, is that, is that the policies are working. Uh, what do you think is going to happen to bond prices if Japan had real economic growth? And if bond prices were to fall, as I would think they, they should if they have economic growth, well, mm-hmm. what's going to happen is it's going to make it impossible to finance the deficit. So in this muddle-through environment that we're in, we're, we're, we're kind of in the calm of the storm. Um, and and for some folks say, yeah, if we get economic growth, everything is going to look great. Um, there are many twists and turns this environment can take. And, and, and yes, with regard to Japan, they do have more options than Zimbabwe. But um, ultimately, if you have unsustainable deficits and there's no end in sight, then that's not going to have a good ending. And by the way, I think that the way they play to play this is with the yen, to short the yen, um, because that's where the valve is going to be. The Bank of Japan is going to keep the borrowing cost low, um, and the, the yen is the one that has to give. Yeah, it's, uh, it certainly has been a good trade uh, up until recently. Um, uh, but um, it would that would make sense. It would certainly make sense. But then the whole world is in the same position to a certain extent. And what's the United States going to do as uh, you know its baby boomers start to drain its treasury here? It seems to me we're going to be in the same position. Well, contracts will be renegotiated. We cannot live up to our promises. So you've got to decide where you're going to be on each side of these contracts, so to speak, who the winners and the losers are going to be. And, and in some ways, of course, as, a, as an investor, there are, there are opportunities to either make money or to not lose as much as some other folks do. Um, but the, the one thing, if you talk on a government level, 
um, interests of governments are not aligned with the interests of the citizens, especially interest uh, of a government that has too much debt. Um, and so some people say, oh, we're going to go back to the gold standard. We, uh, no, why should we? Governments have no interest in gold no. um, because then they suddenly have to be held accountable. If you want to have a gold standard, you've got to have your own. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's for sure. It's certainly the government isn't going to go back on a gold standard if they can help it. Uh, that that would certainly be a, a given, in my view. Um, what, what do you think? Um, y- you also mentioned uh, another article you wrote is is gold risk free, and I think you touched on that a moment ago when you talked about um, you know gold not uh, isn't the answer for everything. Uh, but but talk to us a little bit about that article you wrote. Is gold risk free? Well, the beauty about gold is, is it's, it's, it's risk-free unless and until you touch it. Then you introduce counterparty risk, um, and if you own it and if your daily expenses are in U.S. dollars, um, you have something to worry about. Um, and and, and the, the question ultimately is how do you want to use gold in a portfolio? And just like with anything else, one has to be aware of a risk profile. Um, if you have lots of gold, well, where do you hide it? Where do you put it? Because then you have to spend money to try to protect it, or you put it on a bank, or you put it in, a, in an ETF, or you put it here there they all have pros and cons um, but um, when I when I refer to whether it is risk-free I was mostly referring to the fact that if your daily expenses are priced in dollars you're, you're still stuck with um, the volatility that the price of as gold has now clearly you can think about gold just in ounces and whatnot and and I'd encourage anybody to do that um, but not many people have that with the entire portfolio and so you've got to figure out what is the role of gold in, in somebody's portfolio. I think it should have a very important role but one does have to be aware that um, gold price can be very volatile and so one has to be able to stomach the volatility that comes with it. Axel, one of the topics that a lot of gold bugs are very concerned about all the time when it comes to the risk of owning gold is that government will confiscate it. Where do you come down on that topic? Well, two things. Because we've moved further and further away from the gold standard, I don't think that's a significant risk. Um, at the same time, I, I do see these concerns, and, and yes, I mean, you want to be flexible, um, and you want to be able to have your gold potentially delivered somewhere else if that's what you choose to do. Um, but um, I would think that it is unlikely, if you look at any of the policymakers, they are, they are so far removed from, from the concept of gold um, yeah. that I don't think it's an imminent threat by, by any any stretch of the imagination, and I would think that there's going to be a little bit of warning in, in the sense that there's a mood shift happening somewhere that, that one should take notice of. So I, I don't have any immediate concerns, um, but clearly, yes, I mean, you can, you can hold your gold abroad, and uh, I have some of my gold in the U.S. and uh, a lot of it abroad. Sure. Well, certainly, uh, you know, that, that, that is certainly something that people think about, but as you point out, I mean, back in the 1930s, of course, we've, we were on a gold standard, and the politicians were very much aware of gold, as were the people, and, and I think most, a very small percentage of people now own gold. What do you think the percentage of Americans that actually own gold as a store of value, Axel, you must have some sense of that with your, uh, with your ETF and all the work that you've done in gold. Five percent of Americans, yes, I, or, or what? I, I, no, it's I, I don't. I, I don't want to be quoted here on a wrong number here. I'd be on a record yeah. a wrong number. It's a very small percentage on 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 retail individuals that have it. Um, so I, I'm glad to get back to you on that, but I don't have that number it, handy. Well, it's a very small number, which means that the uh, the target audience or the audience that should be paying some attention to uh, the Merck Gold Trust ETF uh, is a very big number. 
but of course, to get them to do so is, uh, you know, it's, it's an educational process, and most people have been educated in, uh, into thinking that gold is indeed a barbaric relic, and we've all been, we've all been trained that through our Keynesian economic courses, of course. Uh, let me just ask you, we just got a, a couple of minutes left here, Axel, but uh, with respect to the Merck Gold Trust ETF, symbol O-U-N-Z, how is it going? Oh, uh, quite nicely. I mean, it's it's an ETF that competes uh, directly with um, GLD and IU, with a key difference that investors can take delivery of the of the gold. We have London bars that we store in London, um, and uh, when people take delivery, if they choose to do it, we can deliver um, pretty much anywhere um, once we have identified the investor, and uh, you can have it exchanged into coins. Um, and in fact, when you do that, um, the taking delivery process is not a taxable event in itself because you own the underlying gold in the ETF. You're just taking possession of it. And so that's a nice feature, but it is an ETF that um, has, has been trading with a very tight spread. Um, and uh, is, is you can buy it on the New York Stock Exchange. And if one day you want to take delivery, you can do it. We've had a couple of people do it. Um, the process works. Um, and uh, so it's, it's one way to, to own gold, and uh, we, we, have, um, we have nice volume every day in the market, but um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a product that does exactly what it says it, it, it's doing. It, and it's a product that you've uh, gained some recognition for, too. I understand that you were, um, you, you were awarded or given some award for innovation in, uh, in the ETF markets. Well, we, we have a patent, so we are innovators um, on the delivery process. Nobody has a, a, a patent that, um, that says that it is a very scalable process. Uh, so if we had a 1,000 people that take delivery, we could do it. And we were, we were nominated by ETF.com um, as the most innovative product um, for last year. So it was nice to, 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 to be nominated for that. Um, and, and the reason we, we created this product is, is precisely to have um, a solution to this that if you want to have larger amounts in gold or you can buy as little as one share, of course, um, but where do you store it? So we have a storage solution, and then if you want to take delivery, we can do it. We can deliver it. Okay, to the Axel, US, we, we we've got to say, okay, we, uh, we're out of time. I'm sorry about that, but thanks for joining me. Uh, folks, that's all the time we have today. Next week we'll be back. I'm going to be talking to James Perloff. You won't want to miss. Uh, he's going to talk about Chapters 3 and 4 from his book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. Uh, That's all for now. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. 